Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 101. The award-winning World War I Centennial News podcast is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. Welcome to the show. This episode is part two of our Aftermath special, exploring the near-term implications of a world transformed by World War I. Next week, we'll be publishing our 2018 holiday music episode, period and related music for you to enjoy as ambience for your holiday. Then, to wrap up the year, the two following episodes will reprise your favorite segments and interviews of 2018. And you're invited to participate. If you have a favorite segment, send us a direct message on our Twitter channel at the WW1 Podcast. That's at T H E W W, the number one podcast, and message us about what you'd like us to include. Starting the second week of January, we'll be getting back to our more regular programming with a 2019 refresh of World War I Centennial News, a shorter, tighter version of the podcast you've been enjoying, as the war that changed the world becomes a world transformed. This week on Episode 101, Candy Martin tells us about the Gold Star Mothers of World War I. Mike Knapp joins us from the American Battle Monuments Commission. Sir Hugh Strawn discusses his take on the three top global changes brought about by the war. Mike Schuster presents his powerful post called The Cost of a Seat at the Peace Table. And Professor Michael Carew offers a well-crafted overview of the key positions, events, and effects of the conflict. All this comes together for a wonderful overview and perspective on World War I in the second of our two-part special titled, The Aftermath, this week on World War I Centennial News. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Let's jump in. As most of you know, The Gold Star Mothers are women who've lost a child in the service to our nation. The name comes from World War I, when families with great pride and honor hung service flags in the windows of their homes. Now, these service flags featured a bold blue star for each family member serving the nation, and a golden star for each member that had made the ultimate sacrifice. More than a decade after the war ended, a unique and quite incredible event took place. Gold Star mothers and wives traveled across the Atlantic to visit the battlefields of Europe and the graves of their fallen loved ones. Last year, on episode number 50 of the podcast, we were joined by Candy Martin, the past national president of the American Gold Star Mothers, who is herself a Gold Star mother, having lost her son, First Lieutenant Thomas Martin, U.S. Army, on October 14, 2007, in Iraq, and a woman who herself also proudly served 38 years in the U.S. Army. Candy Martin, welcome back and thanks for joining us again. Now, Candy, first off, would you please refresh our audience's recollection about the mission of the American Gold Star Mothers organization? 
American Gold Star Mothers has a mission with a heart. It's a mission of service to veterans and their families. And we like to say that we continue the service that our fallen sons and daughters never got to finish. So it's really special to me knowing that there's other veterans, other families out there who are maybe a little bit more comfortable, have a little bit more hospitality reach out because there's Gold Star Mothers out there who truly have a heart and care. Candy, let's talk about the Gold Star Pilgrimage of the 1930s. What was it? Who participated? Who organized it? The Gold Star Pilgrimage was a result of a congressional act that was passed in 1929, and it was designed to take the mothers and the unremarried widows of those that had lost their lives in service in World War One, the Great War, and they took them to the cemeteries over in France. France was primarily the big one, but there was also a national cemetery where we laid ours to rest in England. And they took those young mothers and the young widows and they took them across on a ship to visit the graves of their loved ones who had been buried on foreign soil. Originally, when it came about in 1929, of course, as we know history, shortly after that is when the stock market fell and we had the Great Depression. But the federal government still was true to their word in making sure that all of those mothers and those widows that wanted to go were able to make the trip. Originally, it was thought, gosh, what do we do with this? So what do they do? They turned to the military. And I'm really proud to say it was the Quartermaster Corps of the United States Army that took on the mission, because at that time it was the Quartermaster Corps, and still is today, who manages our mortuary affairs within the military. And so it was the Quartermaster Corps who sent officers over to France, and they were the receiving end of receiving all of those shiploads of mothers and young widows that would travel across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, this war was really different from anything else the nation had experienced. How would you characterize that? World War One. I, I think it was such a time of pride that people believed that they were doing something bigger than themselves. They were supporting and defending our country on foreign soil before that war got brought to our own home country. And they believed that that's just how you do things, is you have to defend and you have to be willing to stand up and say, if not me, who? And that, I think, is really critical and important. And so it was. It was a very prideful time in the fact that that's when we started seeing the first Blue Star service banners that people were hanging in the windows. And the Blue Star banner was the one that denoted that they had someone that was serving in their military. And, of course, the number of Blue Stars were the number of people, generally men, who were serving. And it was a very proud time in American history where we would see all of those displayed. When we go through history, we see where World War II, we still had the Blue Star banners. But when we got to the Vietnam War, another war that was on a foreign soil, you didn't see so many of those Blue Star banners because it was not a very prideful time, very sad for those families that were not able to display and depict how many people they had serving. But World War I, it truly was a very proud time for the families. That's a great observation. So the last time we spoke, you were working on organizing a trip to retrace the original Gold Star pilgrimage. Did that work? 
Sadly, it did not. We knew that we needed to have a certain number of pilgrims that were going to make that retracing the steps of the Gold Star pilgrimage. And it was a very lofty goal that we had in trying to do this. And unfortunately, we didn't get the numbers that our travel agents wanted us to have. And so we had to pull the plug on that sort of thing. However, what it did do is it connected so many of us here in the United States with those in France who were going to be receiving us on that end. And the connections that we made with the Gold Star families here in the United States, learning about how the French today still feel very, very drawn to the United States. And when you think that we have a common goal in remembering and honoring those who paid the ultimate sacrifice, that's really warm. I was able to connect with several historians when they found out that we were looking at doing this trip and also connect with authors who have written many books that talk about the Gold Star Pilgrimage as a result of World War One. And so it was really a great connectivity. So some good things did happen as a result of the ideals, the dreams that we had in trying to do that lofty trip. Well, it sounds like you made some really great connections, and you're right. Over the past months, as we participated in the U.S. battles being commemorated in France, the genuine outpouring of appreciation and welcome by both the Belgians and the French people was really touching. It always warms my heart to hear those stories. In the past several years, I've gotten firsthand letters that have been written to me from family members where the story has been passed down from family member to family member. And in one case that comes to mind, there was an aircraft crashed on the family farm. But there was a family member who saw the crash happen. They tried to save the aviator, but it didn't happen. And sadly, this young man was buried over there. And so that story has been handed down from family to family. When we think about 100 years, it was 100 years ago, right about this week, that Grace Darlene Seibold and her family received the personal effects of her lost son, George Seibold. So when I think 100 years ago, I think to that mother who knew that her son was not coming home and how she turned that sorrow into service. And that's what we know as American Gold Star Mothers. Candy, thank you very much for joining us. Candy Martin is the immediate past national president of the American Gold Star Mothers and is a Gold Star Mother herself. Learn more about the Gold Star Mothers organization at the link in the podcast notes. Last week, we were joined by Peter Francis and Dr. Glenn Prusser of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. We spoke about the history of the commission and its enduring responsibility to the fallen soldiers of the United Kingdom and its Commonwealth. Now this week, in part two of our Aftermath special, we want to introduce you to the American Battle Monuments Commission and its role to the U.S. fallen. With us to explore this is Mike Knapp, the Chief of Historical Services from the Commission, also known as the ABMC. Mike, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Mike, General of the Army's John J. Pershing, the man who led our forces during World War I, had a deep personal involvement in the establishment and direction of the ABMC. Could you tell us about that? Sure. As I'm sure everybody that follows the podcast knows, Pershing leads the American Expeditionary Forces during the war. And at the conclusion of the war, he ends up leading an agency whose name is a bit misleading if you look at us nowadays. We're known as the American Battle Monuments Commission. 
the reason that that's our name and it doesn't have cemetery anywhere in there is there's a little bit of a process. Following the war and almost before the end of the hostilities, certain American units were starting to put up impromptu memorials to their service. And these began to spring up all over Europe, and they ran the gamut in terms of quality and design. Some were just Stellas built out of rubble from the battlefield with rifles and bayonets and helmets stuck in them. In particular, there's a somewhat apocryphal story about Pershing who complained that the 5th Division, which has a lot of memorials in Europe, was that they basically put up a monument everywhere a soldier from the 5th Division stopped to go to the bathroom. And his intent was to not have Europe end up looking like Gettysburg, with fields and fields covered with monuments and no real overall design. So in 1921, they create the American Battle Monuments Board to review design plans and recommendations for memorials. And in 1923, it becomes the American Battle Monuments Commission. And Pershing is named as the first leader of that. He's the first chairman of the ABMC. And that's a position that he holds until his death in 1948. So we want to fast forward a little bit out of that into the 30s. There are something like 200 different cemeteries that have been established during the war. And they start the process of consolidating these remains into what they call concentration cemeteries. And the decision is made that there finally will be eight permanent World War I cemeteries. The ground that these cemeteries lie on is given to the U.S. in perpetuity, and at that point, the ABMC is kind of taking over, helping design them with the Commission on Fine Arts and other agencies to make sure that these are you know, respectful and symbolic, striking places. The ABMC is also chartered to build a non-denominational chapel at each one of the cemeteries. So as you can imagine, General Pershing had very strong opinions on what campaigns would be memorialized, how and where, and then that just carried over into the cemeteries. Now, in our interview with the UK last week, it struck me that both nations decided to take a very egalitarian approach to their war dead, seeking equal treatment of officers and enlisted men and so forth. Could you speak to that? Yeah, I think we've taken pretty much exactly the same approach that they have done. What's interesting for us that I like to point out specifically, burials in our cemeteries where you have any of the African-American units, the Pioneer Infantry or any of the regiments of the 92nd, 93rd Division, they're not segregated. And at this time in the United States, of course, and even in Arlington Cemetery where there is a big World War I section, the graves are segregated by race. And they didn't do that in our cemeteries overseas. I think it probably became too problematic to say, okay, now we're ready to bury this body. But we know this is a guy from the 369th, so he needs to go in the black section. So I don't know how much of that was by design or how much of that was by necessity. (laughs) Interesting. I know that General Pershing's own grave was equal to that of his men. Yeah. The only difference is he's sort of in the center of them. But I think at the end of the day, there probably was a great deal of feeling on his part that much like he fought throughout the period of our involvement in the war for the U.S. to be a separate entity and a separate force, I think he probably sort of felt the same way that these are the guys in this campaign and they should all be here. Okay. So, Mike, there was a debate in the U.K. about the repatriation of bodies. Was this also a discussion in the U.S.? Yeah, it actually was. I think if you look at U.S. history prior to this, military history, a lot of our conflicts are close to home, you know, so people can get 
brought back home or the families can go get them is more often the case. And then in instances where we have people that die on foreign shores, they've just been buried there. But World War I, as was already pointed out in this segment, the numbers are staggering. We've never had numbers like this before. It's a staggering chore to imagine bringing that many bodies back to the United States. So what they hit upon was they actually gave families the option of bringing their loved ones back. So in World War I, they were faced with three options that they were given the choice of. They could leave their loved ones in Europe at one of the permanent cemeteries. They could have them return to the United States to be buried in a federal cemetery, such as Arlington or one of the cemeteries that existed at some of the different posts around at the time. Or they could have them returned and be buried in a private cemetery. Now, a century later, has ABMC's responsibility and role evolved and changed? I think the larger way that our role has changed is, as you might imagine, up until now, there really wasn't any need to explain to people why we had cemeteries in Europe. But as we get to be 175 years, in the case of World War II, removed from the events, there are a lot of people that have kind of lost sight of this. So the way that our mission has changed a little bit is we now sort of have to educate people and to keep ourselves relevant in the public eye just so that they know. And that's primarily for the American audience, I would say, although younger generations of some Europeans have the same question. But in general, the Europeans still get it. I mean, to this day, with regard to World War I, there's still a great deal of gratitude for the Americans coming over and helping to win that war. We are no longer dealing with solely grieving families and people that all understand intimately and personally why the cemeteries are there. Now what we're doing is we're telling new generations of Americans and Europeans, this is why the cemetery is here. This is the role that America played, and this is the cost of that role. Great interview. Thank you, Mike. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Mike Knapp is the Chief of Historical Services at the American Battle Monuments Commission. You can learn more about the commission by going to abmc.gov or by following the links in the podcast notes. Next, we're joined by Sir Hugh Strawn, who some of you met in episode number 32 when we spoke about the incredible radio docudrama Enter the Peace Broker. Sir Hugh is one of the most respected World War I historians anywhere. He's the Professor of International Relations at the University of St. Andrews and Emeritus Fellow of All Souls College, University of Oxford. Sir Hugh, it's wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time. It's a great pleasure, Ted. I'm delighted to be back on. We've been calling it the war that changed the world. Now, in your opinion, as one of the great subject matter experts on World War I, what would you pick as the top three changes that were brought about by the conflict? I suppose the first and most obvious thing, if you look at it from the perspective of 1918-1919, is that four of the major empires in the world have collapsed. But the result across Central and Eastern Europe and into Asia and into Central Asia and down to the Middle East is massive. Here is essentially a situation where there is a vacuum in terms of governance, in terms of which the successor states will be. All that is going on, and possession is nine-tenths of the law. So while the peacemakers are meeting in Paris, these competing entities are fighting each other, and force of arms is deciding a great deal. So that's perhaps a long answer, but I think that's one of the most dramatic changes. The second would be the entry of the United States into the world order 
its role in shaping the international order, its positioning of itself as a global power. So that will be my second point. And I think the third is that what emerges out of both those things is that our understanding of how states should be put together itself changes. So there's a consideration of power politics. And in some ways, Wilson pays no attention to those principles of power politics. He simply says, or he gives vent to the idea of national self-determination. And that remains, even today, something we respect as a principle But of course, there's been a tremendous source of conflict in the 20th century world, not just in the short term in the run up to the Second World War, but also still today. That's fascinating. So your biggest take on all of this is that the transformation from this was political. Yes, I think I would. I mean, if the implication of your question is, is it economic, is it social? Well, of course, it's those things as well. Sure. Technological, social. There is a lot. And I think I would put political, economic and social ahead of technological, because although the technologies of war are put on a new footing by the First World War, you can see the antecedents of much of that with industrialization between 1850 and 1914. And perhaps the most basic would be the notion that there are societies with mass popular press, with a very high level of literacy, with a degree of economic security, and with a genuine sense of progress defined in all sorts of ways, which makes for the war being a sort of surprise in that you'd expect Europe to have more sense than to go to war, and also makes this war so radically different so quickly it becomes a major war involving whole societies from 1914 itself. And the collapse of the empires at the end of the war is something which all have realized is a possible implication of this war from 1914 itself. Change is there, but change now is going to be in a much more radical form and a revolutionary form. Now, there are some who argue that World War II is simply a continuation of World War I. What are your thoughts on that subject? I've never bought that argument. I don't think I've ever bought it. I certainly don't buy it now. The aspiration that this is a war to end all wars, which is an aspiration expressed by socialists, particularly in France in 1914, and one, of course, reflected by Woodrow Wilson after the US entry, that's one genuinely felt across Europe in 1919. But I think if you look at the situation across the world from the perspective of 1924, let's say, with the Treaty of Lausanne, and with people returning from the war, I think there must then have been a sense of optimism and that whatever has happened in relation to the war and the experience of the war can begin to be put behind societies as they look forward. So I don't think you can jump from 1919 to 1939 or 1941. There's too much in between. You've written a lot of books and a lot of articles about World War I. And you've done a lot of research. And what are some of the key issues about this global catharsis that remain unknown, unknowable, and unresolved? There are areas where I think research will still be done, which will leave us much better informed. In the Russian case, Russia's been neglected because at least up until the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russian history began in 1917. And so the First World War was always looked at as the precursor to the revolution. And the same point in a slightly different way applies to the Ottoman Empire. But it has remained a story too dominated in some ways by the fact that the easily accessible source material is in languages other than Turkish. In terms of what will remain unknown, one is on hunger in the First World War. 
But what I think we will always struggle to identify is how much hunger across Europe in the First World War was a direct product of the war effort, and how far hunger was a product of maladministration, of the mobilization of peasant societies, of the withdrawal of animals from agriculture for use of the armed forces. In other words, how much is hunger an indirect consequence of the war rather than a direct consequence of military action? And this seems to be crucially important because one of the things that I thought would happen as a result of this centenary, but hasn't, is that we haven't the faintest idea what the total number of dead as a result of this war is. Most economic historians would say demographically, the impact of the war is pretty short term, and most societies have recovered fairly quickly in the 1920s. But it would still, to my mind, be the great project actually to answer that question. So there's a lot to be done. (laughs) Thank you. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, too. Sir Hugh Strawn is Professor of International Relations at the University of St. Andrews and Emeritus Fellow of All Souls College, University of Oxford, and an author of many books and papers. Learn more about him and his work at the link in the podcast notes. Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog, joins us reading his powerful post called The Cost of a Seat at the Peace Table. Mike, your post this week struck me as both powerful and, for me, surprising, as it talks about the human cost of the war to America and the political response to our president by our allies. I didn't know the story. That's right, Teo. And as you noted, the headline reads, The Cost of a Seat at the Peace Table. Allies tell Wilson, stay home. Colonel House agrees. Wilson infuriated, especially to the Great War Project. After the armistice is signed, General Pershing arrives in Paris, where he finds himself the toast of a delirious city. So reports historian Thomas Fleming. In the Place de la Concorde, his car was mobbed. Celebrating doughboys rescued him, fending off the ecstatic Parisians, some of whom tried to get into the back seat to kiss the Iron General. Later, celebrating in private Fleming reports, Pershing inadvertently summed up the doughboys' contribution to the victory. The men were willing to pay the price. Fleming writes, the Americans had been in combat 200 days, approximately six months. In that time, 50,300 doughboys were killed. Another 198,000 were wounded in action, another 62,000 died of disease, an appalling 38,800 of these in training camps in the United States. Another 4,500 were killed in accidents. Another 1,000 committed suicide. All told, total deaths were 120,000. Later, after the war, the U.S. government, the Veterans Administration, revises its figures, adding in deaths and the wounded and concluded that deaths by war-related disease, wounds, and other types of trauma brought the total cost to 460,000. Add to this men disabled by gas attacks who were particularly prone to die young, Fleming reports, and another 41,000 doughboys listed as shell shock victims. Many of these, Fleming reports, were hospitalized for life listed as psychiatrically disabled. According to historian Fleming, these figures added up to a disproportionately large toll suffered by the American fighting force in the Great War. The primary reason for this, the lethal firepower of the German army and the primitive tactics of the American fighting force, which relied on unsophisticated frontal assaults until the last days of the war. 
This certainly should have been sufficient to give the U.S. a seat at the negotiating table, but there's a problem. The Europeans have no desire to give President Wilson a seat at all. According to Fleming, soon after people stopped dancing in the streets, sour notes began to appear in the peace process. The president assumed that the Allied leaders would welcome his announcement that he was coming to Europe for a peace conference. Instead, they advised Colonel House, Wilson's closest advisor, that they would be much happier if he stayed home. The French Prime Minister, Georges Clemenceau, told House that Wilson's presence seems to be neither desirable nor possible. According to Fleming, behind this hot political air was a deep suspicion and not a little dislike of Wilson's overbearing political style. Some in Washington agreed with this. Better for Wilson to stay home and let House and others do the hard bargaining that inevitably was to come. What's more, it turns out House shares this view. He tells Wilson in the cable he would only support the president's coming to Europe for more ceremonial moments in the peace conference. Wilson, needless to say, is infuriated. And that's the news from the Great War Project this week, a century ago. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. We've talked a lot about the impact of the war on men's bodies and minds, on the cities and towns where the fighting took place, but this really was the war that changed the world. It had profound effects on just about everything. Joining us to explore the effects of our pre-war to post-war world position and foreign policy is Michael Carew, professor of economics and finance at Baruch College and author of the book, The Impact of the First World War on U.S. Policymakers, American Strategy and Foreign Policy Formulations from 1938 to 1942. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Delight to be here. So, Michael, as we just heard in Mike Schuster's segment, as the peace negotiations begin 100 years ago this month at Versailles, they did not particularly want Woodrow Wilson to participate, our only president ever with a PhD and in political science, no less. So what are some of these varying positions of the Allies, and what do they hope to come out with? The primary allies that we were dealing with or that Woodrow Wilson was dealing with was rooted in three considerations. In the first, the other allies, Italy, Great Britain, France, had been at war, and all of those countries had suffered extensive casualties. And they look at the entry of Wilson as a latecomer and a not major contributor to the victory. The second element is that when Germany in October of 1918 sought an armistice, it addressed its request to Wilson. Now, Wilson had published his so-called 14 points, and the Germans were seeking to obtain an armistice based on those 14 points, which was Wilson's perspective, not that of the collective allies. So this rubbed the other allies entirely wrong. The last aspect of this is that the British and the French and the Italians were looking for a settlement of the war that was a vast variant from that of Wilson. Both the French and the British, to a lesser degree the Italians, wanted a vengeful peace. They wanted compensation for the damage that had been done in France, the losses taken by the British and the French. 
and some assurance that Germany would never again be able to rise as a threat to the peace of Western Europe. So you have these differences of perspective, and there was, as a result, a less than perfect enthusiasm for Wilson to now come to Europe and essentially dictate to the Versailles discussions. Michael, we never ratified or became a signatory to the Versailles Treaty. Why was that? Wilson was re-elected in November of 1916 on a campaign of anti-war sentiment. And the tagline of Wilson's re-election campaign was, he kept us out of war. So when he was inaugurated the second time, less than a month later, he had gone to Congress and asked for a declaration of war. So the American political environment was poisoned by this 180-degree change of policy. And in that context, in the fall of 1918, November of 18, immediately before the armistice, in the midterm elections, the Republicans had gained control of both the House and the Senate in what was tantamount to a rejection of the Wilson administration. So the domestic politics of the United States were hostile. This domestic hostility to Wilson manifested itself in the ultimate rejection of the treaty. Well, during this time, Wilson suffered some health traumas as well, didn't he? When Wilson returned after the negotiation and presented the Senate with the treaty, he understood immediately that he had a political problem. So he made an effort to go over the heads of the Senate and run a political campaign nationwide. And while initially there was a positive response in this city-by-city tour, after roughly a week, the hostility of the crowds and the local newspapers as Wilson moved to the West became manifest, and Wilson became increasingly distraught. And the combination of his destructive negotiations that he had been put through in Versailles, his belief that somehow Colonel House, who was his trusted aide, had betrayed him, led to, if you will, a nervous breakdown when he was in Pueblo, Arizona. And then he immediately returned to Washington as an invalid and effectively was an invalid for the next two plus years. Okay, if you were going to condense it down to the single most important issue, what were the lessons for us to take away from the effects of World War I on U.S. policy? First and foremost is the fact that we were grossly, one might say criminally, unprepared to go to war. So that when 1938 came about, General George Catlin Marshall took the posture that we must have a major preparatory effort to remobilize and to rearm the United States. That is probably the most important aspect or the effect of the World War I experience on subsequent American policy. Well, Professor Carew, you've given us a really concise and clear vision of the general policy issues and challenges from pre-war through the peace negotiations. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you, and I appreciate the opportunity. Michael Carew is a professor of economics and finance at Baruch College and author of several books. Learn more about his writings and books by following the link in the podcast notes. And that wraps up the second of our two-part special on the immediate aftermath of World War I. We hope that this special helped you keep, maybe develop, a perspective and overview of this globally transformative period. 
And as we think you'll discover in our 2019 episodes, the actual transformation, both for our nation and everybody else, is only in mid-stride from the war that changed the world. We want to thank our guests, Candy Martin, past president of the American Gold Star Mothers, Mike Knapp from the American Battle Monuments Commission, Sir Hugh Strawn, Professor of International Relations at the University of St. Andrews, Mike Schuster, Curator for the Great War Project blog, Michael Carew, Author and Professor of Economics and Finance at Baruch College. Many thanks to Catherine Akey, my co-conspirator and the show's line producer. To Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team. To J.L. Michaud for his research. And I'm Teo Mayer, the show's producer and your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. For the past five years, we've inspired a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including with this podcast. We've brought the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators and their classrooms. We've helped to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And now, as we head into 2019, we have one more key goal yet to complete. With your help, we're going to build America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. To learn more, go to www.cc.org memorial. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. And we want to thank the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn. You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places you get your podcasts and even using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The podcast Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget, keep the story alive for America for generations to come by helping us build the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Use your smartphone to text the letters WWI to the phone number 91. 91- 999. You'll get back a text that shows you how. Thank you for listening. Boy of mine, boy of mine, although my heart was aching, I seem to know you'd want to go right in your mouth. So long.